All right, as you're making your way back to your seats, um, we are in week three of a little sermon series. Um, We've done this sermon series now for maybe three or four years, and uh, we call it Truth and Art. And uh, we've done authors, we've done movies, we've done music before, and uh, now we're in the middle of a series on painters. And part of the reason we're doing this is because we believe that all, all art is ultimately making truth claims about reality. And because all art, whether again it's music or paintings or or whatever it is, is making truth claims about the world that we live in, then you can actually follow those truth claims and follow that art and find your way back to God. And so all of a sudden, either positively or negatively, you can begin to have an encounter with and a conversation about who God is as the author of reality and what he has to say about reality. Here's what a man named Francis Schaeffer had to say about this process in a book that he wrote called Art and the Bible. Here's what he said. No great artist functions on the level of art for art's sake alone. Regardless of what they say they're doing, regardless of what they say their intended purpose is, no great artist functions on the level of art for art's sake alone. There's something more. They're aiming at something transcendental. The artist makes a body of work, and this body of work shows his worldview or her worldview. When we see a collection of an artist's paintings or a series of a poet's poems or a number of a novelist's novels, both the outline and some of the details of the artist's conception of life shine through. In other words, when you take the sum total of the creation of that artwork, you can piece together and really see what the worldview of that artist is. And so, for example, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Picasso. And I was actually just telling somebody this morning that if Picasso were to walk in the great room this morning next door when everybody was milling around, I literally would be very tempted to walk over, grab him by the elbow, and just escort him out because he was not a good guy. He was a predator. And, uh, and not only that, but his, the absence of God in his world because he, um, he basically said, I don't believe there's any God. What that led to both in his art and in his real life was the objectification of women so much so that they were deconstructed both in his artwork but also in his real life as well. And so his worldview played out in some very, very destructive uh, and dehumanizing ways, right? Last week, Bob talked about Mako, let me make sure you get his last name, Fujimura. And so Mako was very, very different in the sense that he's a, he's a Christian, he's a believer. And so whereas Picasso's artwork seemed to sort of paint this picture of deconstruction of reality, Mako's purpose in his art was very different. Maka's purpose is to give us a glimpse of the transcendental, right, of something that's bigger and higher than we are. And in particular, his desire was to expose us to beauty and in exposing us to beauty to feed our souls. Today, we're going to be looking at a different artist, but before talking about who he is, let me take a moment and we'll pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for this day. Again, um, I would just ask uh, and pray that you would be here in our midst. And Father, I I don't know why it is that everybody's here, anybody's here. Um, But what I do know is that you know why they're here. And so I ask, Father, that you would, through your spirit and through your word, uh, that you would make your way through our defenses, that you would make uh, your way through our exoskeleton to our hearts and to our minds, that you might introduce us to yourself, that we might know that you're good, that we might know that you love us and that your love for us was demonstrated through the person and the work of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to show you a picture, a series of paintings very quickly. There's going to be five of them. And uh, I'm going to just ask that you take a moment and sort of process them. Unfortunately, technologically, over the last few weeks, we've been having some struggles. So 
you might not really be able to see that all that well, but, but look at them anyway, and I want you to think about what feelings they may evoke within you. So that's the first one. Second. You can't see that, but that's a, a painting called The Vampire. <laughs> you just have to take my word for it. All right, and then the final picture you'll probably recognize. Okay, that's the scream. And so this author, sorry, this painter is Edward Monk, right? So maybe some of you guys are familiar with that that painting of the scream. You've maybe you've seen it on T-shirts or you've seen it online. You know, you might have seen it in different places. But if I were to ask you if you could see those pictures more clearly, and I were to ask you a question and say, "Hey, what did you experience, right?" Uh, emotionally as you looked at those pictures by Edward Monk. And I think what you would probably say is that you experienced a feeling of despair, right? A a feeling uh, not of solitude, but of loneliness. I think you would say that if you looked at those pictures, that you would definitely experience very viscerally this fear of death. And part of the reason that you would have those experiences were you able to see that artwork clearly is because uh, the type of artwork that uh, Monk developed was called symbolism. Now, prior to Monk, there were all these other various forms of artwork. There was realism, which went out of its way to paint a particular scene as realistically as possible, right? And uh, so there are any number of famous artists that you could, uh, would recognize in that realist tradition. And then when the camera was invented, all of a sudden artists had to think, well, who am I as a painter now in response to this thing that can capture uh, you know, an image really and realistically? And so the Impressionist movement sort of grew out of the invention of the camera because what they sought to do was to say, well, actually, here's how we really see things as human beings. And so part of what Monk said was he looked at those types of art, both uh, Impressionism and, uh, and Realism, and he thought they were too shallow, right? He just thought they were, they were too simplistic. And so his particular genre of art is something called symbolism. And what symbolism uh, taught essentially was that paintings should seek to evoke some sort of emotion, Right? And not only that, but rather than depicting a scene exactly, they should focus on an individual in a context. And the context doesn't really matter that much, but what matters is when you paint them, can you convey what's going on inside of them? What's their psychological reality? What's their psychological state? Right? And so all of a sudden, if you see that that's what symbolism as an art movement tried to do, and you look back at Monk and you say, all right, well, I see despair, and I see loneliness, and I see fear of death, you probably would be right to say, well, why? You know, why are those the themes that are so present in his artwork? Well, a couple of things. One, Monk grew up uh, in Norway. He was born in 1863, died in 1944, and spent much of his life in Norway. But he grew up in a home with a Christian father. But unfortunately, this Christian father um, believed in a version of Christianity that I would argue isn't biblical, A, And then B, this Christian father really struggled with depression and anxiety. And so you pair all of these things together and you really ended up with a toxic recipe uh, of life that Monk grew up in this home of. Now here's what Monk had to say about his father. He said this, My father was temperamentally nervous and obsessively religious to the point of psychoneurosis. For him, from him, I inherited the seeds of madness. Monk always felt like he was right on the verge of losing it, of falling apart. He goes on to say this, the angels of fear, sorrow, and death stood by my side since the day that I was born, right? You can just sort of feel the weight and the heaviness of the psychology and the experience of his home. His father, 
on top of all of that, would regularly read the five children's stories of Edgar Allan Poe when they were young. That probably didn't help either, right? Adding to his father's anxiety, adding to his father's um, depression, adding to his father's view of Christianity, which is not a view that we would espouse, uh, his mother and sister both died of tuberculosis in his childhood. And so you can just sort of imagine the psychological world that Monk grew up in. It was heavy, it was oppressive, and there was death everywhere. Monk's response to this despair and response to his fear of death was to run away from God completely and to run into the waiting arms of the Bohemian art movement in both Berlin and Paris. And so he found in this Bohemian art movement in Berlin and Paris free love and free expression. There is no God, therefore everything is permissible. And after living in that world for a little while, he began to be sickened by the abuses that he saw in that bohemian art world because people had no transcendental value, right? There was no value in and of themselves because there's no God. And so they just became tools in one another's worlds. And so there was really the abuse and objectification of women, women and relationships. And so he became offended by that world and he moved out of that world into a different world He still rejected the idea of God, and instead he began to be influenced by a man named Hans Jaeger. And uh, this is what uh, an article that I read had to say about Hans Jaeger. He said this, or it says this about Monk's relationship. He then met anarchist, nihilist, atheist, proto-existentialist Hans Jaeger and adopted his philosophy of life. Uh, Monk later credited his artwork and the expression of his artwork as flowing directly out of Hans Jaeger's view of reality. There is no God, therefore life is meaningless, right? And that's all there is to it, right? Life is meaningless. Monk's response to his adopted view of life was despair, right? Just absolute despair and an absolute fear and terror of death. And let me just call time out here for one second and just say that that view of reality, if there is no God, then it makes sense, right? It makes all the sense in the world that if there is no God, if there is no transcendent reality, if we're just sort of the product of atoms bumping into one another and of natural selection, then life is meaningless, right? Life is dark. And so you might as well despair. You might as well be terrified about death. That's totally logical, right? Other responses to the absence of God, the absence of the transcendental would be hedonism. In other words, well, if there's no God, I can do whatever I want. That's what the the Bohemians did. And so they engaged in everything they possibly could and all forms of pleasure. And the problem was that it actually led to misery. Another response to the absence of God might be stoicism, this idea that, well, if there's no God, then I might as well just sort of shut my heart off from anything that might hurt it. And ultimately, I'll sort of quit caring about the world that I live in. Those would all be logical responses to death and the fear of death. The question is, none of those are responses that are justified by what Christ has done on our behalf. Let's take a look very quickly at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Now, I could have, we could have looked at lots of different passages of Scripture, but in particular, I wanted to take you to this section. Um, the, essentially, this letter was written in about 50 AD, right? So it was, you know, whatever, 20 to 15 years after Jesus' death, and Paul is writing it to the church there in Thessalonica because several prominent Christians have died. And they don't know the people in their church that loved them and cared for them didn't know what happened to them and what's going to happen to them. And so Paul writes for the purpose of informing them. Here's what he says beginning in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. 
For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Those people that you lost, right? You'll see them again. Verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Now, there are lots of different things that we could talk about from this passage today. And if I tried to do that, this would end up being a long sermon, and you probably would begin to nod off a little bit, not that this isn't, you know, life-altering truth here, but ultimately we're going to focus on a couple things. And so the first thing that I want us to see in this passage is that as Christians, as Christians, we do grieve. As Christians, we should grieve. As Christians, we ought to grieve. As Christians, we have the freedom to grieve, right? Maybe more so than anyone else. Verse 13, again, says, brothers and sisters, this grieving is not for everyone, but this type of grieving is for those who are in the family of God. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. Now, throughout Scripture, and I mean throughout Scripture, grief is modeled and it's also affirmed, right? We see David grieving the loss of his infant son, right? He is in sackcloth and ashes. He's grieving. We see David grieving the loss of his son Absalom, right? We see in the New Testament, Paul affirming our grief, not only here in 1 Thessalonians 4, but also in Philippians chapter 2, where he writes, indeed he, Epaphroditus, he's writing, He says this, indeed he, Epaphroditus, was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Later on in Romans chapter 12, Paul commands us to weep with those who weep, right? To grieve. And then again, later in Acts chapter 2, we read that devout men buried Stephen. Stephen was stoned to death for his proclamation of faith in Christ. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, right? Grieve. We're, we're commanded to grieve. It's modeled to us in Scripture. More importantly, as Joel pointed out this morning, we see Jesus grieving with Mary and with Martha at the grave of his friend Lazarus in John chapter 11. Again, I'm going to read these verses. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, they're grieving, he was deeply moved. I've said this two or three times before, but that Greek word means to snort like a bull, right? It wasn't just that Jesus was like, oh man, you know, that's too bad. Jesus was actually angry, right? He was angry at death. He was angry at the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of sin. He snorted like a bull in the face of the death of his friend and the sorrow of these women. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept, right? As Joel pointed out this morning, Jesus knew he was about ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew what was getting ready to happen. And he still wept over sin. He still wept over the sorrow of these women. He still wept over the loss 
of his friend Lazarus. He still wept after the chaos and the destruction that sin brings into the world. It's important for us to realize that grief is modeled to us and commanded of us in Scripture because we as Christians ought to grieve. Too often we try to speed through grief, right? Something absolutely terrible happens, and we say, you know, God's good all the time, right? And the reality is God is good, right? That's a true statement, right? Or we say, all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. We say those things, true, but the problem is, is that what gives those verses the sort of the meaning and the weight is actually after we've walked through and lived in and suffered in the depth of our grief and our sorrow. Does that make sense? Like, it's not really, 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 really good news until you've experienced the really, really horrible news and the horrible pain of loss. Healthy grieving always acknowledges the depth of our pain, the reality of loss, and healthy grieving always deals with the truth that life actually is never going to be the same, right? That divorce, your life's never going to be the same, right? That, that infidelity, your life's never going to be the same. The death of that grandparent, your life's never going to be the same. There's a real reason to grieve the reality of that loss. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called A Grief Observed After His Wife Joy Died. And it's a wonderful, man, I utterly recommend it. But in it, he talks about the suffering. He talks about this grief. And one of his responses that he sort of makes about people trying to hurry him through his grieving process, he says this. He says, to say the patient is getting over it after an operation for appendicitis is one thing. After he's had his leg off is quite another. After that operation, either the wounded stump heals or the man dies. If he heals, the fierce, continuous pain will stop. Presently, he'll get back his strength and be able to stump around on his wooden leg. He has gotten over it, but he'll probably have recurrent pains in the stump all his life, and perhaps pretty bad ones, and he'll always be a one-legged man. There will hardly be any moment when he forgets it. Bathing, dressing, sitting down, getting up again, even lying in bed will all be different. His whole way of life will be changed. All sorts of pleasures and activities that he once took for granted will have to be simply written off. Duties too. At present, I am learning to get about on crutches. Perhaps I shall presently be given a wooden leg, but I shall never be a biped again. The death of a beloved is an amputation. Right? It's a wonderful description of loss. It's a wonderful picture of what grief truly is. Your life will never be the same. We grieve the loss of loved ones. We grieve the loss of people we've never even known. We grieve tragedy and suffering in the world. We grieve over self-destructive and other destructive behavior. And as we become more like God, our hearts aren't actually grieved less. Our hearts are actually grieved more. Let me say that one more time. As we become more like God, our hearts aren't grieved less. They're actually grieved even more, right? When we stand in the reality and the presence of loss and of brokenness and of sin and of death, we grieve because life will never be the same again. But what Paul is telling us here is that we grieve, but we grieve very differently than the rest of the world because we grieve with hope. Listen to what verse 13 says again. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have 
no hope. So clearly we do grieve, but our grief should be different. It should be filled with hope. Um, my grandmother um, just passed away a couple years ago, um, but she was began to have these symptoms of what we thought initially may have been Alzheimer's, but it turned out that it was vascular dementia, but it was roughly toward the end of college for me. So I was about you know 21 or 22 years old. And uh, my parents did a great job taking care of my grandmother. This is my mom's mom. She went through these stages of dementia. And so for a while, they just made sure that her bills were paid and that people brought her food to her home in Pensacola, Florida. They were living in Greenville, South Carolina. And then pretty soon, my parents had to move her up into their uh, sort of basement apartment, where then my mom and dad took care of her for several years. Uh, Then she spent probably the last, you know, 12 to 15 years of her life in a nursing home. And so one of the things that my parents did, who were both semi-retired, is they spent lots of home and uh, time in these nursing homes. And uh, they would get to know the other patients on the hall. They'd get to know the families of the patients in the hall. And one of the things that my mom was telling me at one point in time, she said, you know, Brian, one of the things that I saw very clearly over the course of this 14 or 15 years that Grand Grand was in the, the nursing home was just the different way that people grieve. And she said, when I would sort of be in relationship with these um, people who were elderly that were maybe atheists, didn't believe in God, she said, when death sort of became, it became time for them to pass away, she said they were filled with terror, right? They, were, they would scream, they would rage, they were filled with terror. And not only them, but their families would respond one of two ways. Either their families would respond in terror, or their families would kind of respond in stoicism, like, well, you know, the old car is just, you know, dying out. It's time to get a new one, right? It's time to move on. And so these two sort of weird extremes of either raging and being terror, terrified at death or sort of just sort of minimizing the reality of that hum, human was in the absence of the transcendental, transcendental, those are both options. She said, we grieve very differently. But she said, when the Christians would grieve as they move towards death, these older folks, they would be filled with hope, right? Their families would be filled with hope right, that they would be made new, that they would see one another again. There were entirely different ways of grieving. The question is, why exactly is it that we as Christians can have hope? Why should we grieve but with hope? Well, one, we grieve because death is not the end, right? We grieve because death is not the end. Paul, in this passage, two two times refers to death as sleep. So verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, just for one second, I want you not to miss one thing here. Don't miss the prepositional phrase that's embedded in this passage. Those who receive this good news of hope are those who have fallen asleep in him, right? In Christ. It's our union with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection that is the source of our hope, right? It's our union with Christ, of being in Christ, that we get what he has earned for us, that God sees us in the same way that he sees his son. And so resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, gives us the hope that we will one day, once again, see our sons, and we will see our daughters, we will see our parents, we will see our spouses again. As believers, we will miss and grieve the absence of our loved ones, but we will know that we will see them again because death is not the end. It's good news, right? And it's good news that you have precisely because you believe that Jesus died and rose again. And because he died and rose again, we also will be raised with him. Death is not the end. 
The second reason we can have hope here, according to Paul, is we can have hope because God is more powerful than death. Let me say that one more time. We can have hope because God is more powerful than death. This is an interesting little sentence here in verse 16. I'm going to read it, and I'm not exactly sure that I'm going to be able to explain it as well as I should, because I read lots of commentaries, and commentaries are written by really brilliant, godly people who sometimes get it right, sometimes don't know what to say, and this is one of those verses, kind of. But verse 16 says this. Just listen with me, if you will. For the Lord himself, this is Jesus, himself will come down from heaven. Right? So there's this vision of Jesus coming down from heaven with a loud command, or in some translations, a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so first, let me just kind of paint this picture. Jesus is coming down to earth, this place of brokenness and sorrow and chaos and suffering and loss. And with a loud command or with a shout is what we're told in, these, in the Greek. And that word is like a, a war shout that maybe a general would give right before his troops charge into battle. And so Jesus shouts as he's coming down from heaven. And then the voice of the archangel, and so here's the captain of the Lord's army, and he shouts as well and joins with Jesus in this battle yell. And then there's a trumpet. And so there's this trumpet blast that gets everyone's attention, right? And so there's just sort of this cacophony where the creator of the universe enters in to undo all that is broken, right? To undo death. Right? It's almost like a scene from Braveheart, if you've seen Braveheart in the last 20 years or so. It's almost like William Wallace and all of these troops charging onto this field of battle to take back what is rightfully theirs. What we see in this verse is that we can have hope because God is more powerful than death. Right? Jesus appeared in the Old Testament, um, Old Testament sort of version of Jesus appeared under the cover of night to Joshua, right? And he wrestled with Joshua and touched him on the hip. In the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, in this pre-incarnate form, appeared to Nebuchadnezzar as a fiery figure in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Jesus arrived 2,000 years ago as a baby on a quiet evening in Bethlehem, in weakness, in disguise, right? And even when he was an adult, only the demons really saw him for who he was, right? Every now and then, the disciples got a glimpse, glimpse, but they just never really got it, but the demons did, right? So Jesus came in weakness. He came incognito. But here, Jesus comes as a conquering king, leading an angelic army with a shout, the sea and the earth give up their dead. Why? Because God is more powerful than death, right? God is more powerful than the death of your grandfather, your grandmother, your daughter, your son, your parents, your loved one, right? God is more powerful than death. You see that in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan overcomes death and then he runs into the white witch's palace and he begins breathing on all these dead creatures and he brings them back to life. What he's trying to communicate is that God is more powerful even than death. And so because of that, we can have hope. The final thing we see in this passage is that we can have hope because it's after death that our relationship with God is finally fully restored. It says this, and so we will be with the Lord forever. And so we will be with the Lord forever. In Psalm 27, verse 4, David writes this in poetic form. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. In other words, what David says is, I want to be with you, right? I want to be with my heavenly father, 
Right? I want to be with the one who sees me and loves me and knows me and who gives me life. Jesus, in John 17, 3, he's praying the night before he goes to the cross in the presence of the disciples, and he says this, now this is eternal life, or this is the meaning of life, or this is what life is all about, or this is where fulfillment comes from, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And part of what Paul is saying in this passage is we can have hope not just because death isn't the end and because we'll see our loved ones again, and we can have hope uh, not only because God is more powerful than death, but we can have hope because God is more powerful than hell, right? God is more powerful than the sin that separates us from him. And the price of this restoration, of being in this relationship again with our heavenly father, is that Jesus was forsaken on the cross in order that we might be included in the family of God. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And Paul ends by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words, right? Death is not the end. God is more powerful than death. You'll be reunited with God forever, right? You'll walk with him. It's what you were created to do. It's what you were created for in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this morning, as you look around the, the, the room, you'll see tables with bread and wine and bread and grape juice. And this is a meal that we celebrate, and we call it the Lord's Supper. Some people call it communion. People call it different things. But what this meal represents is many things. In fact, it, it represents, according to one theologian, 42 different facets of our justification. And uh, one of the facets of our justification is that when you uh, partake in this bread and this wine, what's being declared to you and what you're declaring is that God sees you now as innocent, right? And more than innocent, he sees you as having the righteousness of Christ, and therefore you're clean, you're safe, you're declared not guilty before God. That's good news. But part of what this meal also symbolizes or prefigures is the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? We're told in Revelation 19 that when this whole world has finally been remade and reborn and death is ended and suffering and chaos have been undone, that we sit down at this banqueting feast, the wedding of the lamb, and we drink wine together and we eat food together. It's like the greatest Thanksgiving you've ever had without the distraction of football or without the distraction of your crazy uncle, right? But you sit down and you eat this meal together with these loved ones for whom death is not the end and with your heavenly father. And it's all at the wedding feast of the lamb. And so this morning, I invite you to come and to take this bread and dip it into the wine and I encourage you to be strengthened by the reality of what this meal communicates, that one, you're declared righteous, right? That God sees you, and amazingly, you're perfect in his sight. You're just right. But not only that, take this bread and take this wine and be reminded that because of your faith in Christ alone, that one day you will sit down at the wedding feast of the Lamb with your heavenly Father and with Jesus, your Savior. Let's take one moment, and uh, I will uh, read the words of institution, then I'll pray. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, this visceral reminder um, 
that we one day, uh, when all of the suffering is over and all of the death has ended, um, that we will sit down with you, Father, at a feast. And that you have invited us to this feast and you'll give us uh, the best of everything. And so, Father, I pray that this meal today would prefigure that, uh, that experience of joy. Father, I pray that this meal today would remind us um, that death is not the end. I pray that this meal would remind us that we will see our loved ones who are in you again, Father, that we will celebrate with them. Father, I pray that this meal and the resurrection of your son, which is painted as a picture here, that, uh, that it would remind us, um, Father, that you are far, far more powerful than death. You created life, um, and you are in charge of death. And Father, you're not only in charge of death, but I pray that it would remind us that you're more powerful than the claims of hell upon us. And so, Father, I pray that we would take this bread and take this wine, and that you would strengthen us, that you would communicate the gospel deeply into our hearts and our minds. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.